Well, I want to welcome all of you to today's interview. I am thrilled. Uh, this is the first time that I have done an interview like this with this type of theme. And the theme of today is faith and fake news. We are getting ready to come up into another election cycle next year. And I would say that we are nowhere near ready for the next election cycle. I think about the last four years and even before that and how anxious and reactive people have truly become, and not just in a secular sense, but also in churches. People are more reactive. They're, they're not really able to access parts of their brain that help them to regulate their emotion, and all because they scroll on their phone down social media and they lose their minds. I think there's come a point where there's also, on another hand, been a skepticism and a cynicism that's developed that in some ways is a bit arrogant. In other words, everyone has become their own expert overnight on really big issues that people have spent their lives studying. So there's been a collective trust that has deteriorated. So what does healthy information look like and how do we know what that process looks like, especially as a Christian? And if you are trying to live according to how Jesus calls us, you have to develop a level of discernment. And the question is, is how do we do that? And so I have a very special guest who wrote a book called Faith and Fake News, Rachel Whiteman. Um, and it, the sub is to, a, a guide to consuming information wisely. I think this is very needed. And I'm very excited about someone who can kind of help us put handlebars on this very complex conversation. Rachel, welcome to the channel. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Oh, I am thrilled. I am thrilled. I am really, really excited. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about your background and why you decided to write this book. Yeah, so um, a little bit about me. Um, I live in the Twin Cities in Minnesota, hmm. and I have been a librarian for um, just about 15 years. And something um, people don't always realize is that uh, librarians have a master's degree in library and information science. And hmm. so um, I actually came um, to the world of librarianship through community development. Hmm. And I attended a small Christian university um, in New York and studied abroad and got really excited about community development. And so I started down this path of um, studying community development and how to make communities better. How do you do sustainable work? And at the time I was working in a library. I was not a librarian, but I was working in a library and I was taking these classes and kind of wrestling with my future. And um, one of my professors said the best community developers are librarians because wow. they connect people to information and people to people. And that really resonated with me. And then I decided to pursue my master's degree and I've spent my career as a librarian teaching. So um, primarily I've worked in um, academic libraries, colleges, universities. I've looked, I also worked overseas for a little while. Um, and so, and in all those cases, I was teaching primarily students, how do you find and use information in ethical mm. ways? And as a Christian, that was like really powerful for me, right? Like it just felt so important that Christians would be able to think critically about information and um, to use it well and in, you know, kind ways. And so that's been like my professional career, um, kind of a variety of, of libraries. And then um, you mentioned the previous election cycle, and this was back in 2019, um, I was having a lot of personal conversations <clears throat> with friends and family about news. I mean, 2019, we were 
at that time, only looking ahead to 2020 as an election year. Mm-hmm. Little did we know um, what all would happen. Mm. Um, and so in 2019, I was having these conversations and people were kind of talking about maybe how they interacted with how they were talking to family, right? Every, mm. Everyone was talking about the election and and that was a year away. I mean, in 2019, we weren't even at the election yet and people were just having all these like emotional conversations. And I was noticing this theme around news and how people were talking about the news. And um, around that same time, my church also offered a class um, on intercultural competence and how do we live in our increasingly cross-cultural world, intercultural country, and how do we do that well as people of faith? And um, it was such a great class, but I was also noticing as we were talking about, um, you know, our implicit biases, I was also thinking about, you know, as a librarian who's looking at information and looking at how people find information, I was thinking like, well, we have these implicit biases, but what's the role of the information? information that we consume informing those biases. And so it was like all these moments I felt like God was just like placing in my life that started to coalesce. And in 2020, I started offering workshops, a workshop for my church mm-hmm. on sort of misinformation, how as Christians, can we like seek information well? Um, and that was like a six week class. And the last week of that class was one week before the pandemic started. And so it was like, because I was focused on the election, right? And then it was like pandemic. And then we're in the Twin Cities and then George Floyd was murdered. And so then that caused Mm. all, I mean, like that spring of 2020 was just so, as we can all remember, felt so, there was so much division and so much angst and stress and um, exactly all the things you mentioned in the beginning about who's an expert? How do I know what to find? Who Everyone's sharing posts online. Um, it felt like information was like flying through our computer and phone screens. And um, so that all happened. And then I was able to offer that workshop again. And then a couple of news media outlets picked up on that. I was doing that. And then I was able to continue offering it. And then eventually it turned into this book, um, which for me has been a bridge between two worlds. So mm. when I started offering those workshops, I was trying to find a bridge between this my professional life as a librarian and teaching information and then my faith community, which those two things, it was really hard to find a lot of content mm. that bridged that gap, if that makes I imagine. sense. I imagine. Um, and not that there, there are people doing really great things on like news literacy, media literacy. Um, but I found that there wasn't a lot of people talking about it from a faith perspective. And so this book kind of came out of those workshops and I hope can be a resource for people who are looking to have those conversations as a Christian. How do I, how do I engage with the news in a positive way? How do I know what's true? How do I talk to people about it? Um, and so that's kind of where that all came from. <laughs> it came out of those workshops, but really at, hopefully as a resource for people um, who want, who want to live a little bit more intentionally in a world that doesn't, make that easy. Yeah. I mean, you'd mentioned the last handful of years, they have been, they've been bonkers. And I think the collective experience of trauma socially, individually, um, the pandemic, the politics, the racial tension, you've, you've probably watched a lot. You've, you've seen a lot. And I would be curious about what some of your observations 
uh, are about how people tend to educate themselves on these very deeply complex matters? What do you, what do you observe? Yeah, that's such a good question. And, um, I, I am definitely an observer. Um, it's just like my personality. I like to just kind of see what's happening Mm -hmm. and what I have noticed in the last, definitely the last few years, but just in general, um, is that people are real. I mean, we rely so much on social media, I think, to get our news um, mm-hmm. or on our online spaces, really. It's not even just like Facebook or Instagram. It's just like being online is how we consume information now. Um, and and I, I have talked in the past about, you know, in my book and in other places that, you know, if you think of like back 200 years ago, the way people received information was radically different. The world was totally different, right? And as the internet came about and then smartphones, which now we all have a computer in our pocket and then social media, the way we get information is just so different. And what I'm seeing is that people are, they're they're not necessarily going to a news outlet to get their news Hmm. or their information. They're getting it from the news outlets, social media channel. So maybe instead of going to the New York Times website or getting the New York Times physically, we're reading the headlines from Twitter Mm. or we're scrolling through Instagram or TikTok and seeing like little video snippets of things. And we're calling ourselves educated on that Um, (laughs) in terms of news, you know, and that's purely anecdotal. I don't know if that's, that's just what I feel like I'm seeing more and more is like, Oh, I saw this video on TikTok. I saw this headline on Instagram Um, or, you know, certainly people do still watch the news on TV. um, But I feel like the way they're educating themselves is through these really small pieces and not necessarily taking the time to dig deeper and like read the full article or read the whole book on it. And, and I don't think that's, I mean, that's, I don't want to make a blanket statement, but certainly are the, having a smartphone, having online access for many of us, not, I realize that's not true for everyone, but for a lot of people that, that scrolling that you mentioned, right. We can just keep scrolling Mm -hmm. in a very mindless way. We can just kind of grab a headline, grab a headline, grab a headline and not actually say, okay, how am I going to engage with this and actually learn the full story? Um, How am I going to get to the original source of this? That is just, our platforms don't encourage that. They want our attention. They want us to keep scrolling. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that you get to that I want to just kind of put people into an awareness mode. Uh, and, and I'm going to go through different things that you cover in different chapters here, because this, this book is, is got a, it's, it's not a huge book, by the way, if you're, if you're watching this, this is something you can get through and I'm going to be working my way through the whole thing. Um, but you mentioned that algorithms influence us in chapter one. Can you Mm -hmm. share a little bit about algorithms? Yeah. And I, and that's really related to your other question about how do we educate ourselves on these matters? So um, all of our online platforms, so that can be searching Google, it can be using Instagram, it can be using Facebook, it can be, again, just searching something online. It doesn't really matter what you're doing. Um, These platforms are collecting data on what we Mm. do, whether it's our IP address, where we are physically, um, previous things we've searched, previous things we've clicked on. um, That's part of how they stay free, right? They, they collect that data. And, um, 
And then they take that data and then they make predictions about what we would like to see next. So a lot of times people talk about this as that phenomenon of like, I talked about buying this new pair of shoes and then I saw the ad on my phone, right? It's not necessarily that your phone is like listening to everything you say, but it's just pulling together all of your different searches that you've done or clicked on or things. And then it's kind of making these predictions and they're surprisingly accurate sometimes. Hmm. Um, and so then what happens in, when it comes to like your information consumption, your news, what you see about current events is as you engage with certain kinds of sources, you begin to see more sources that are the same because it's very personalized. These algorithms create a very personalized environment for what we see online. And then in terms of how your question before, of how do people educate themselves? We're, we're trying to educate ourselves as best we can, but we end up in these like echo chambers where we just yep. keep seeing the same things over and over again. And then it actually becomes harder to educate ourselves because we have to purposely choose to say, I don't want to keep seeing the same things. I want to see something different. And that's really, really challenging. Um, and I think it can also create some of those divisions that we see. I mean, like you said, the last few years have been totally bonkers. <laughs> and how much of that is because we are all literally consuming diff different information. I mean, you and I are in different places um, geographically. So our searches will look different just from that. Um, and so we can start to live in different potentially very different realities from the people we care about because we've all gone down this very personalized online environment. And again, it doesn't matter necessarily if you use Facebook in particular, but it's just like, this is kind of the environments that we are swimming in when we're online. I think you're mentioning something very important because we get to a point where we've been influenced and don't even realize it, that mm -hmm. there has been this world that is, I mean, a lot of these things are world building. Yeah. And so we are in this ecosystem and, and it feels real because it, you know, we're not aware of things that we're not aware of. Right. And so things that are outside of that algorithm bubble that are true and matter, maybe we have emotionally committed to something out. I mean, you know, that wouldn't be something we would be curious about because mm -hmm. we've already been so influenced within this pocket of algorithm and right. it creates this, you know, this, this buffer and it, it affects our relationships. So the second thing with that in chapter two, you mentioned paywalls, um, and the myth of free information. This, this is, this is fascinating to me. Can you, can you share a little bit about this? Yeah. So I think one of the other things that we're seeing when we're online in terms of related to like the, those the first thing I talked about with algorithms, that's often called a filter bubble, right? It's like exactly what you're talking about. You kind of live in these little bubbles. And then layered on top of that is this idea that, that I, I don't think people consciously think about, but I think there's this expectation with, as we can consume more information online, that it should be free, um, mm. right? You can scroll through your social media and find experts, which we can talk more about later, but yeah, we will. you can find experts on any topic um, and it can make you feel like, well, I should just be able to access all of this for free. And then so but someone has to pay for that information. So, for example, if you want to access um, the Wall Street Journal and you're, you're like, I really want to read some of these articles, but you don't pay for a subscription, you can only access so many for free because they need to pay their journalists. They need to pay for a server. They need to pay all of these things that cost money 
And so they do that through a subscription, which is, that's that paywall. Um, and it's the same thing for like during COVID scholarly articles, and there's all this research coming out about COVID and frantically, right? Like, because they're literally researching as this virus is, is developing and we couldn't always access those on our own. And so that's the beauty of a library, right? We, that's what I tell students that I work with. We pay for you to have access to more information. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if we rely only on what's free, we're going to miss out on so much. And it's not bad. It's not bad that we have to pay for it. In the past, we bought those newspaper subscriptions and they were on our front door. Um, Or you went to the library and sat down and, and read read the newspaper. Um, I just saw an article last week that the National Geographic magazine is no longer going to be printed. Um, And that's like huge to me that like this like staple in how people learned about the world for decades is no longer going to have a print um, component anymore. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a testament to how people are choosing to, to engage online and, I think that if we think we can get everything for free, we're just going to miss out on even more. And if we only pursue those free options, then it's going to continue to keep us in those little bubbles. And there is a lot that is available for free. And there are lots of people that are working to make more um, scholarly things available. That's called open access. Like that's that's something people are working on. But the reality is it's just not, we we don't live in that world right now. And so I think it's really important. I, the thing I wanted to get across in my book was like encouraging people to, to try to find other ways of getting information that wasn't just that free video that you saw on YouTube. Yeah, the, we are definitely moving towards a subscription economy, which technology is kind of allowing us to go backwards in a way, in a good way, where people can be their own shop, right? You mm-hmm. can set up shop. That's how it used to be. And then everything got centralized in terms of media outlets, the Mm -hmm. the corporations control media. And we're seeing that change. I'm seeing that in sports media. ESPN is laying off a ton of people and they're bringing on people who have online audiences already. Anyway, so subscription economy is here. It's not going anywhere. And this actually is a great sort of segue to uh, talk about Patreon. So what this is a great moment. Like I have a ton of comp that I put on Patreon that never hits the public. And what's interesting is this, Rachel, the reason why, so I started Patreon uh, a couple years ago, but I didn't really start it. It started after I released an interview that people reacted very hostile uh, Mm. towards. And so we got a death threat and everything. Long story short, um, I set up this this other community, which has been a huge blessing. And if you want to support me, by the way, those of you listening, Patreon is the way to do it. Um, and I'll put that in the description. But Patreon is a place where I can have conversations and I can bless people with, um, in terms of my professional expertise, I, I can do things differently. It's a different community where we can have conversations at a different level and the reactivity just isn't the same. There's no way. There's no way that I can have those types of conversations in the public. Yeah. Um, there's interviews where I will cut them off and we'll do what's called off the record. And that's what I'll put on Patreon. And this part is what I'll put in the public. And part of that is because the, the level of reactivity has created in some ways, it's not just an economic model, that's part of it, but it has created kind of, 
you know, a need for people who want Oasis. Like they don't want all of the criticism and the backlash and the outrage that comes with dialogue. And right now, spaces, healthy, safe spaces that are spiritual, those are really hard to find. You're not going to find it on Facebook. You're not going to find it on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but to your point, we got to pay for information. And this this kind of off the script for a moment, I got to be honest, sometimes I feel like there is a lot of entitlement. Mm-hmm. Um, there is this idea that it is free and, and mm-hmm. it should be free. And people don't actually, I think, think that if something is spiritual, it should be something they have to pay for. I think yeah. people think if it's spiritual, it should be free. Right. That drives me nuts. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, anyway, I, I haven't had a moment to even process this. So thank yeah. you for, 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 you can, you can, you can bill me later. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, <laughs> that, but that, 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 that's something I've noticed is yeah. that there is that entitlement and that yeah. entitlement actually doesn't bless people because the information they're getting, sometimes you get what you pay for. Yeah. Yep. Well, and if you think of even, um, like, looking for a movie, right? You want to stream a movie and you can't, Mm. it's not available on the platform that you have. Like I have Netflix, but I want to see a movie that's on Hulu. And like, even if you notice the emotions of like, Oh, I don't have access. It's like, well, (laughs) things cost money. And, and it's on, you know, it's like, that's, that's the world we live in. And, and I get that that's kind of come from a place of privilege um, sometimes, but like, I think we need to be aware of where we're paying for expertise and, mm. and be willing to support the expertise. You know, the, the news outlets that have high standards, journalistic standards, whether you agree with everything they write or not, they might cost money, Absolutely. but they have higher standards than Joe Smith down the street who created a blog and an Instagram channel and is just spouting things off. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's something we need to, to, be willing to support. And to your point, things that are spiritual, they might cost money for us to grow and, and being willing to invest in ourselves. Um, and, and that's why in my library or in my book, I literally say, you can also go to the library. Like there are other ways to get this information. If you can't afford all of those subscriptions, like obviously we can't all just pay for everything. There are finite resources, but there are creative ways that we can get access to more than just what's freely available. So getting to the emotional part, which is a big part, a big component of this conversation. In chapter four, you mentioned this idea of noticing your emotions. Why did you focus on this? Yeah, this, it's so funny because, you know, a lot of times people think either in my book or in my workshop that I'm just going to like give them a list of like, here are the top five news articles you should read or sources. Um, but what I found over the years of, of creating these workshops, writing this book, is that the work of learning if something is true, the work of being discerning, the work of thinking deeper about topics, it doesn't start with a checklist. It starts with us. Mm-hmm. And being willing to like notice ourselves before we engage can help us engage deeper, I think, and more wholly. Um, and it helps us respond to other people more kindly and humbly. Um, and this is something that a, a lot of times I think we're also noticing, you've brought this up multiple times, it's so emotional to be online. We see a, a headline and we kind of like, what? I can't believe this is happening. Or we get angry. 
Um, there's also a lot of studies that show that misinformation spread is often more emotional and then spreads faster than true information. Wow. And so I think there's a, a piece for us. We can't address every piece of misinformation. We can't address every little thing, right? We can't fact check everything. But if we can make the habit of noticing ourselves, um, I think that can go really far. There was also a study um, that, that you, your listeners might find interesting. There was a small study, um, I think it was, came out in 2021, that showed that people who exhibited higher levels of emotional intelligence were better at spotting um, misinformation. And wow. yes, so I just, I, I'm not a therapist, but I just like found that so fascinating Yes, um, that if people and, and we can grow in emotional intelligence, right? So if we can increase our capacity for emotional intelligence, it might also help us address the spaces where we see misinformation online, on social media, in the news um, and noticing our emotions and being able to name them at least for me personally, was one way I have learned to grow in emotional intelligence. Just being able to name like this article is making me angry or this is making me upset. So in chapter three, you mentioned that if a comment, oh, I love this. So you, you, you actually nailed a couple of things. Like we see all these things happen all the time, but no one names it. Yeah. Like if you see a comment removed, we become mistrustful or skeptical. So if a comment gets removed, we're like, oh, they, well, we don't know who's they or them, right? They must have done it, whatever. Yep. Um, and then the other thing is, is that we label something as fake news, sometimes out of frustration. Yeah. I thought to myself, you nailed it. You nailed it. We, we just are using fake news now as a label we're using it as a concept or a construct in in terms of frustration and so can mm -hmm. you share a little bit more about that tendency that you've noticed yeah i think yeah well and we've certainly seen that in in the way people engage online they people can be very quick to label things as as incorrect we can be um, and, and that idea of noticing our emotions is one way to help us pause before we do exactly what you're, you know, what I write about, right? If we notice our emotions and we can notice that something's making us upset, it will help us prevent us maybe <laughs> from saying like, oh, that's just fake. It's, it's incorrect. Um, and I think, I think it relates to those algorithms and that, that filter bubble. It can, it can lead to a lot of confirmation bias, um, in terms of us thinking like, well, this matches what I think. So it must be true. Um, and yeah, I, I have definitely seen people who, who have said to me like, well, if it gets removed, it's yeah, there, there's so much skepticism around that, whether that means I've seen it both ways too. Like some people like uh, a video gets grayed out, you know, on social media and it says like, this has been fact check, you know, kind of like click at your own risk kind of thing. And I've had people on both sides say to me like, well, that means it must really be true because they, again, who's they don't want us to see it. But then I've also had people say like, Oh my gosh, that must be so incredibly false. I can never look at it. And it's like, they can have these like radically opposite um, points of view. And I think with that, I, I almost don't even know how to, what I want to, where I want to go with this, but I think there's also maybe a level of like misunderstanding about who is doing that fact checking and like mm -hmm. where it's coming from. Um, I also see a lot of skepticism around um, using some tools. So 
in my book and in my workshops, I often mention things like Snopes.com or PolitiFact or um, some of those websites that do fact checking and people can be really skeptical about those as well. And I think it's the same thing where it's like, these are all tools. Like we don't have to like go down the deep end of skepticism. We can just say like, Hey, this was marked for some reason. And let's, again, notice your emotions. If you're having an emotional reaction to that, that's something to pay attention to and then decide how you want to move forward with whether engaging with that or not, or doing a little more fact checking or whatever that is. And it's the same thing with those websites, like notice the emotion and then decide how you want to move forward. So I don't know if that really answers your question, but just so much skepticism about all of these things that I wish we could all just slow down a little bit and notice the tools that are available to us. Yeah. So people don't even know, like, so on YouTube, I'll I'll use an example. When I upload this video, here's what will happen. When I upload it, I have this huge checklist that I have to look down and I have to, and I just do it every time. Controversial. I just click it every time because what YouTube now does in order to monetize your video, they will go through the whole thing. They, they, they review it in terms of all the words in your video. They have software that does it and they look for keywords. So I just released my last video is limited monetization because it's trauma it's house churches and trauma survivors. I think because mm-hmm. trauma survivors was in the title or in the yep. interview, they literally gave me limited monetization. What that means is when I when I when yep. I have people watch, then I don't get the full whatever right. uh, for it. People don't get that as a creator. <laughs> You have to be mindful of everything mm-hmm. for a couple different reasons. Number one, they will limit your monet. My most popular video on my channel has limited monetization and I tried to appeal it and it didn't work. So now when I'm watching YouTubers, they are in their interviews, they're taking out certain words, like things are getting really, really regulated, mm-hmm. partly because people are so reactive. Yes. Um, the other thing people don't realize is how much control these platforms give us in terms of the comment section, because they know comment sections are getting out of control and people are escalating and we don't need any more of that. And so some people, if like they have this entitlement, this toxic entitlement that anyway, long story short, I, I, I would just encourage people to be very mindful that on the creator end, um, platforms, are highly regulating yes. and they have all of the power. They yes. have all of the power. Yes. And in terms of like making sure we get money and all of that, they're going to win that. Yeah. So I, I get the skepticism that's out there, but as creators, we're having to be more creative yeah. on how not to get canceled by the platform when we put videos yeah. out. Um, but, yeah. but I get the skepticism. Um, you know, not to get too much into it. I mean, we could get real political really quick in this conversation, (laughs) but even in the election, next election cycle, the fundamental sort of basic um, tissue of trust has been broken down. Even when it comes to voting, Um, people feel finessed, people feel duped, people feel scammed. And that keeps them in this sort of like alert all the time and they can't trust. And I think it started to affect people's relationships in the church as well. Okay. So chapter five, um, you uh, talk about learning to evaluate. So the meat probably of what people are looking for is now where we get into lateral reading um, and the overall 
uh, process of what healthy information gathering looks like. Let's talk about this. Help us kind of give us a 10,000 yep. foot view of what a healthy process <clears throat> looks like. Yeah. It's so important. I think so. all these things that you're talking about is so important for people to understand um, the platforms. You know, I think we, we do forget that the plat it's the platforms that are big companies. Um, and, and I think that that is a big piece of how we get information is so different, right. Going back. And so then it affects how we seek information and then how we evaluate mm. it. Right. So it's all connected to me in terms of like, because when I was growing up, without the internet, we would do like these very basic like exercises of like, here's some headlines. What's a fact? What's an opinion? And it was like, it felt very different than like right mm -hmm. now where you can just scroll and scroll and scroll and people can create content, much of which is really great, but then can also be very reactive. Um, and so the way we evaluate is very different. And so the, the couple main pieces I really recommend again, because I don't, really give checklists of, right. of things um, is really to slow down. So that again mm. is related to checking our emotions and being willing to check things outside of our bubbles, um, looking at different news sources that maybe aren't the ones we normally interact with mm -hmm. um, and trying to understand the full picture of a current event, especially can be helpful when you to look at more than one news source. Um, the lateral reading that I mentioned is like, yeah taking the time to look up the creator. Um, and it's really easy for people, you know, even in an Instagram post to like, like list their credentials at the end. Um, but even there, like, it's okay to Google their name. They probably have a LinkedIn profile that will give you a little more info. Um, and lateral reading is at a very high level is just taking a minute to say, before I engage with this person's content, I'm going to just see what kind of credentials and what their experiences. And then I can decide if engaging with that content is worth my time. Mm -hmm. um, and again, not to be overly like cynical, but just to, just take, take that pause, you know, like what, okay, what experience do they have? And, and a lot of times it's going to be fine. And you're going to be like, great, they, they seem to be an expert. I can move on. Um, but sometimes we're going to come across organizations that we, they, they can post something online that looks really good and really flashy and some short snippet of a fact or a statistic that sounds really compelling. And then you look them up and you find their Wikipedia page and you find out that they have some controversy surrounding them or, you know, things like that, that like, okay, now how does that influence the, you know, the content? And so the lateral reading is just taking some time um, for unknown creators or websites, um, just a quick search. What, what can you find out about them? Um, you know, slowing down, reading different news sources. Um, this is all very countercultural. It's very counter to the way our platforms are designed. They're not designed to help us slow down. They're designed to keep our eyes on the page. <laughs> mm. And so, so choosing to say, I am going to leave this page that I'm on to go do a quick search on the creator is very counter to what it's de like designed to do. And it's okay. It's okay to say, Oh, you know what, actually this person is going to be great. I can't wait to read more. Or, you know what? I don't know if I really going to trust them. Maybe I'm going to take a step back. And I guess I'm a big proponent in, in my book and in my workshops of just saying like, we need to gather, slow down and look for some things so we can decide how to respond. And instead of just responding and just so instead of just having that reactivity, let's do that pause. Let's do a little bit of check on who created it 
And maybe sometimes that's not relevant. Maybe sometimes it's like, you know what? I actually need to read another news source. That's not my usual one to get the full picture on this current event. Um, or maybe it's like, Hey, I heard this like little snippet of something on the radio. And I just want to, I want to get to the original source. I want to read the full speech instead of just the soundbite that played on the radio, right? The original source of what same during COVID, right? Like we wanted to get to some of that more original research. Um, I don't know. Those are just some things off the top of my head. Yeah. So, so let's, let's get a little bit more into the weeds here. Okay. Let's take COVID. Um, there is insurmountable skepticism about COVID. Um, what an enormous process for the world to try to handle a huge, huge dilemma and the reaction time, the politicization of it, the, um, the way that social media was affected, um, and played a role, um, in the whole masking vaccine, so forth. I think that eroded a ton of confidence that people had in medical community for a lot of Uh folks. And what I've noticed is this, is that certain, uh, I want to say, I want to say like a fundamentalist Christian, but let's just take, there are certain types of Christians on both sides who got really polarized. Let's say on this side, you have people who maybe are just like, guys, can we get back to the Bible? Well, what's interesting is people who quote unquote want to get back to the Bible or who feel like we've gotten so far away from it, they developed a certain stance towards masking vaccines, it seems. And over on the other hand, those who would be considered more liberal or progressive seem to develop uh, a perspective about masks and so forth. And what I found is, is that the church became a place of conflict um, for people who kind of have this. And now all of a sudden there's this, well, you don't really believe in the Bible or you have this perspective about it. And so there was a lot of crossfire going on. And then at the end of the day, there was this, well, I'm going to listen to Fox and I'm going to listen to CNN or whatever. And so there's Mm -hmm. two parts to this. One is um, the pandemic. What were your observations on how churches responded to that? Number one. And then I do want to get into specific news outlets because there are many Christians and many churches who actually do get a lot of their, they do listen to Fox. They do listen to CNN, CNNBC, MSNBC, whatever. Like they listen to these things. Then there's like NPR, right? I want to Mm -hmm. to talk about that too. But anyways, in terms of just like COVID, um, you write a little bit about that in the book. I thought thought that was very interesting, Rachel. Yeah, it's... COVID was a whole thing. Um, and I, so, you know, you bring up something really interesting about the, the, um, the way the church responded. I, I talked to a woman who's on staff at a, a church organization, and she was saying that one of the things they were observing during kind of the height of the pandemic and COVID was that people were not only getting their information from and news from different outlets, like you said, like you had the people reading Fox, watching Fox News and CNN, whatever, or whatever it was. Not only were they getting their news and information from radically different places, they were not only, they were judging not only each other for having, engaging that way. Like, so it wasn't even just like, oh, you listen to that news. It was, it went beyond that. It was, how could you be a Christian and listen to that? Absolutely. And that, when she said that, I was yeah. like, that is exactly what's happening. <laughs> and she said it so succinctly. I was like, oh my gosh, that's that's it. Exactly. We've gone beyond being able to say what's the truth of our faith 
and what we believe. And then we've somehow tied that to the types of information people consume. And that is just drives me kind of crazy <laughs> because I, I, I just think there's so many things in our world that are in the middle, right? The truth of so many situations, not everything, but many situations, many things is in the middle. And with COVID, I think what we were really seeing was exactly what you said, that mistrust. And it goes back to that previous conversation we were having about people thinking they can just like rely only on the free information. And so it, it's like we, if people rely only on what they could find freely about COVID, they're missing a lot of the story. And there's so much information about COVID written by these scholars and experts and researchers that like, let's face it, I can't read that and understand it. Like, let's have some humility about our limits. Like, I'm not a scientist. So why would I think I could pick up the latest scholarly journal article about COVID and pretend to make some conclusion about it? And I think that that lack of humility is was really missing. And then that lack of trust in saying like, you know what? These epidemiologists are doing the research. I'm going to trust their summary of it and be okay with that. Like, I don't know why we had so much trouble with that as a church. I, it just, uh, it was like kind of mind blowing to me. Like, why wouldn't we trust the people that are experts? We, in our churches, we hire pastors that have credentials or people in youth ministry who have worked with youth. Why wouldn't we do that in other areas as well? So let's say I'm just an average Joe Christian or Joan Christian, and I'm sitting here and I feel like the world is spinning and we're entering another election cycle and I want to start the research process. And let's say just at a Fox News, CNN level. Okay. When you think about what would be the overall motivation agenda of a Fox News and a CNN, okay, um, if I were to go down that path and I were to look at them would you say from a, uh, and you're an expert on this, that they are going to give fair, balanced, objective information? Either one of them, probably not. Okay, thank you. <laughs> I feel like everybody has a bias. All of these news organizations have a bias. And there are tools out there, and I talk about it in my book, that will, there are organizations that like rank all these news sources and they will tell you what they believe from their perspective, so that we're getting into like a third party, Yes. what they think their bias is of these different news organizations. Usually it's based on politics um, because in the U.S. we're highly left and right. Those are like the main two lenses right. people look through. <laughs> I suspect yep. there are other ways to look at it. Um, and I kind of use those as a tool to say like, look, they're all, they all have an agenda. They all, or they all have a perspective, I guess is probably a better way of saying it. They all have their things. A lot of these organizations, again, they want to make money. Um, and so for us as Christians who can say we want to we want to approach a new news, right, this new election cycle, we want to say, okay, we're going to approach it with some more kindness, some more wisdom, some more discernment. We have a choice. And if we say we're going to pin ourselves to just Fox News or just CNN, we're never going to have the whole story. And so mm. if we can say, I am going to choose to pick some new news sources from a variety of perspectives, we're going to get a much better view of what's happening than if we just pick one or the other. Those two in particular, I think, have become extremely polarized. And I think there are so many other great news outlets that are doing 
quality journalism. I'm not a journalist, but those are the things I, I really encourage people to look at is like, look at the journalistic standards of those news organizations. And if they have them, they're posted on their website. You can read their ethics, their code of ethics, their code for journalism. And that's really important. I think as Christians who want to be in this world and engage well, then let's engage well and pick organizations that have those ethical standards of journalism, even if, could we do that even if we don't always agree with their conclusions? And that's what I think is so hard for people is like, we want to live in our confirmation bubble, bias bubble, filter bubble. Mm-hmm. And like, but couldn't we be much more informed on what's happening in our world if we would choose to say, I'm going to read from multiple perspectives. And then like, how much more of like a witness could we be to people if we were like a little bit calmer, right? We're noticing our emotions and then we're choosing to say, I am going to gather information from a variety of perspectives and maybe say, I don't, like I was saying with COVID, right? Maybe getting to a point where we can say, I don't, I don't know. I I think that's really hard for people because uh, I've got another interview I'm going to be doing. It's uh, on QAnon on the cross, conspiracy theories, whatever. And they they have a chapter where they talk about uh, unreasonable Christians, that there's a certain level of reasonableness that we we're seeing within Christians where everything becomes a hill to die on. Mm-hmm. And so I find that in your book, I'm people, when it comes to information, they're dying on a hill. And I don't know that, I mean, I would say from a therapy perspective, I don't think people are very in tune. I, I like what you said about emotional intelligence being correlated to um, maybe reactivity and, and, and that type of thing um, of what people see. And I think some people haven't got to the bottom of what this is really about for them. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain heirlooms from our past that we have inherited and people are disoriented. Mm-hmm. People are de-skilled. They, they, you know, um, when I think about the middle class, there's a lot of class anger. Don't trust mm-hmm. the rich, feel robbed by the poor. Mm-hmm. New cycles continue to feed and, um, you know, take from people who are disenchanted, disillusioned, and incredibly hot, like angry. And they, you know, news cycles have the power to feed people's frustration um, with information that helps, I mean, that makes them even more untrusting mm-hmm. um, and more reactive. And then we kind of get addicted to that news outlet. Um, I'm not going to say which news outlet it was, but there was a news outlet that I watched through um like the last year and so forth, what was going on with, uh, you know, the runoffs and so forth. And I watched this news outlet so I could get an understanding of a certain demographic of the church. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, do I agree with this news outlet and this and that? No. Um, but it gives me intel on what people are being given. The second thing, Rachel, I would say is, is that I've actually become a proponent of international news reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, international and local. I, th- I do not think there's enough local, mm-hmm. um, local reporting. Um, this actually was at the, uh, the white Ho- white house correspondence dinner. There was a comedian who was amazing and his mom was a local reporter. And he, at the end of his correspondence speech, um, he talked about local reporting. And by mm-hmm. the time it gets to the national, I mean, they take all the sexy stuff, but they're not really connected. And so, uh, national reporting to me is probably for me, okay, where I have the least trust. Yeah. I have more, most trust at local 
and I have a more trust than national at the international because yeah. when I watch the Brits and how they look on us and so forth, it, it's insightful. It's it it's incredibly insightful, at least in my opinion. I don't know yep. what your thoughts are about that. Oh, I I agree. I um, my church did. Uh, my pastor held like a, a book launch event for me with my book, uh, you know, last month. And yeah. um, we had a reporter that was there. We did like a panel and there was a reporter from our Minnesota public radio. Mm. Um, and so she was able to talk about her perspective as a journalist in this world of all this news. Right. And she was able to talk about her process of like being on the ground and reporting on local educational topics. She's an education reporter. And I thought that was really powerful to like hear from someone who's like literally in our community helping us learn about what's happening. And I lived, I lived overseas. Um, like I mentioned before, I lived in East mm. Africa for a couple of years. This was 10 years ago now, but I was there. And to even 10 years ago in that part of the world, some of my colleagues, my African colleagues, I felt like were more in tune to what was happening in the U S than I felt like I was like, they just wow. like had this like amazing <laughs> awareness. They were very, they would like scour their, I mean, they had mostly print newspapers. And then, yeah. you know, 10 years ago, we were getting some news online, um, but they were just like so honed in on like what was happening around the world. And like, it was such a powerful experience for me actually to like have these like conversations with people who were engaging with news from a different country and like how they looked at my, my country and how we could have those conversations. So yeah, I, I think there's something really powerful about engaging with the local news and like you said, the international news and, and choosing to see other news outlets as a tool for us to understand each other mm -hmm. is so powerful. And I think when we can recognize that people are engaging with different news sources, it can also give us some grace. Um, yes. Like I think of even in my own family, how many times during COVID was I like taught, like really noticing something about whatever masking or vaccines. And I was really cognizant of that. And then I would talk to someone in my family who would be, focused on a different part of COVID. Mm -hmm. And I was like, what is happening here? And then I would like, I would go to like, maybe the website I know they get their news from. And oh my gosh, that one's not even talking about the things I'm thinking about. So like, no wonder we can't communicate well, we are literally seeing different information. And then that's changing how we react to it. Um, and how we react to each other, which I think is where the church is going back to what you said before, that's where the church is having a really hard time figuring out how to navigate that. So I want to read a couple of, again, this is the book, Faith and Fake News. It is out, right? It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's out. Um, and I want to go through the table of contents just briefly. I like to do this when I'm doing uh, interviews with authors because it gives the audience an understanding of what they're going to be getting uh, when they purchase the book. Um, the intro, and then uh, there's part there's three parts, it looks like. Yep, three parts. Uh, first of all, part one is the uh, information landscape. So algorithms and filter bubbles. Uh, chapter two is the wide open information landscape. I really liked that. Like I, I scrolled through that. I thought that was really, really good. Um, chapter three, a world of fake news. Okay, so that's part one. Is there anything from part one that you just want to share that that would be important? No, I think we covered it. I mean, the main thing there okay. for me is just helping people understand just the, the ba let's get a foundation so we can all move forward together. Part two, evaluating information. We covered this a little bit on chapter four again is noticing our emotions. Chapter five is, five is learning to evaluate. Um, I think that's where a lot of people um, 
as we have become social media dependent, uh, it is, a, I mean, we think of spell checking now, like can people spell anymore? Like we, 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 there's a lot of shortcuts in terms of information that, you know, in terms of just basic researching skills, uh, I think it's been very erosive mm -hmm. and if it's free, it's kind of like sugar and, and carbs. It's just, mm -hmm. it's so easy for us to take in, but we don't realize what it's doing. And so I just really, I yep. love this idea about discerning and then chapter, um, part three, this is really important. Deciding what to do. I think that's where a lot of Christians are now. Uh, chapter six is purposefully seeking out new perspectives. That sounds threatening. Um, and then some people are like, I don't want a new perspective. Um, and then number seven, I love this, which is kind of bringing us to our next thing, which is loving our neighbors. Mm -hmm. That's the crux of it for you mm -hmm. is being an on, yeah. being a witness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It, to me, when I started doing these workshops and then as I was writing the book, I was noticing this theme where I came to this a whole idea, right? Of I want to offer this class for my church. I want to give people tools to find information. And then week one, everybody shows up and is like, what do I do if my mom reads Fox or CNN? What do I do if my grandchild is on Facebook all the time? What do I, you know, it was like immediately the conversations were about the relationships mm. and I think, and that's been the theme, you know, through all of this is like, yeah, we can talk about how to evaluate information. I think that's really important. Um, and I think at the end of the day, it comes down to how do we love others? Well, we talk all the time in the church about how to love our neighbors, right? You bring them a meal when they're sick. You, in Minnesota, we sometimes shovel each other's sidewalks when it snows. <laughs> um, you know, so we talk about those like physical things, but in a world that's increasingly, increasingly online, we are you know, we're recording this podcast from two different locations because we can do that with technology. Mm -hmm. As our world is more and more connected through online spaces, how are we going to love our neighbors well? And as Christians, if we don't know how to find the truth, then how can we talk about the truth mm. of us, you know? And, and, and I think that to me is where it all comes together is like, this is about our relationships. It's about loving other people. This is about being kind. Um, this is about saying sometimes we don't know the answer, but I'm, not going to let my relationships fall apart because we have a difference of opinion. That is not something we're doing well, I don't think, in our right. culture. And so how do we come together? How do we have these conversations? And the whole book, I've really tried to incorporate like reflection questions for people and practices and um, exercises that people can try, experiments. And that's, you know, even in that chapter is like, how can we experiment with having these kind conversations? Because it's really Yes, it's great to like have a broad news understanding of the world, but at the end of the day, what are we going to do with that when it comes to our relationships? The last question, it really ties in very well, which is how can we balance not being quote unquote uh, of the world, but, but also being all things, all people. And the reason why I say this is because there are people watching this who their, their approach, their tactic is to put their head in the sand, right? I mean, sometimes we can put our head in the sand and call that taking our thoughts captive, right? Mm -hmm. And so when we look in scripture, scripture very much calls us to understand, quote unquote, what civilian affairs are. Scripture calls us to not be caught up in quarrelsome matters, but scripture doesn't call us to run away from culture. Mm -hmm. Scripture doesn't call us to run away from where people are in the struggle. Mm -hmm. And I think that what some people do is they have become aloof 
or culturally out of touch in the name of being separate from the world. Right. And this can lead to certain insensitivities. Mm-hmm. This can lead to becoming a presence of um, judgment. Like we can have a judgmental posture towards people because we haven't done a good job of doing good boundaries around, okay, I, I got to make sure that I'm not getting you know overwhelmed and consumed, but I got to make sure I'm not in avoidance either because mm-hmm. culture is something we have to, as Christians, stay somewhat, um, we have to, we have to stay at a place, be in a place of understanding when it comes to culture. It shouldn't threaten us. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but I think that's kind of the thing is like, okay, you know, what encouragement do we give to people who just say, you know what, forget it. I'm going to unplug and I don't know what's going to happen or whatever. How do we encourage people to have a good middle or healthy boundaries? Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I always <laughs> know either. Um, I think one of the things I think about a lot is, and I talk about this in the book, is that I've at different times in my life I've engaged. This is probably interesting to some of your listeners. I've engaged in like a lot of personal therapy, and one of the types of therapy I have done is called dialectical behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. and it's a very structured program. It's pretty intense. Um, but one of the big things of DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, is is this posture of non judgmentalness, and 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 really accepting things the way they are. And I think that's a big part of how I approach this work is that how can I accept what is happening and, and move towards change, right? So DBT is like, accept what is and look for change. And so I found that to be a really helpful framework for me in terms of how can I kind of, this is the world we live in, you know, and, and yeah, I could run away and bury my head in in the sand about it. Or I can say, this is where we are. And how do I, as a person of faith, love people well? I think we, Mm -hmm. as Christians, right, we're called to love people. And if we don't understand the world that they live in, I think it's going to make it a lot harder to love them. (laughs) And, And I have some tools in that chapter in particular around, like, how do we have these hard conversations? How do we talk to people? Um, And I think finding that middle ground is really hard. I think it's very counter-cultural. It's counter even to our human nature sometimes. And yet I feel like that's what we see in scripture. It's who Jesus was. He was with the people who were marginalized and the people that were um, unexpected, right? And so how how do we do that online, right? Like how do we move into these unexpected places? Um, And I don't know if I always have the answer. I don't always want to do it either. (laughs) If I'm honest with myself, it's really hard. Um, And yet what a testimony to like our faith and, and people, the people we want to be, if we can, can move into that space and say, I'm going to find that middle space. And I end my book with, I think it's near the end of my book. um, It's somewhere in my book. I talk about a workshop that I did where um, I was talking about finding that gray, the gray space in, in kind of what's going on in the world. And someone interrupted me. I was on zoom and he's like, I'm sorry, did you say gray or grace space? And I was like, what? (laughs) I was like, I said gray, but I'm going to use grace from now. Right. Um, but I just think that's really powerful. Like where's the grace, um, for ourselves, for other people, for the people we interact with. And it doesn't mean we believe conspiracy theories. It doesn't mean we let people believe them. But I think there's somewhere in the middle that we can, we that's where Jesus is. And that's mm-hmm. what we can strive. We can strive to be like him. Um, at the end of the day, this is 
to me, this is discipleship work. If discipleship is becoming like Jesus, then finding the truth in our current current culture, finding the truth of current events, loving people well, that's all becoming like Jesus. That's discipleship work. Um, and that's my hope is that this is a place where people can find that middle ground to, to slow down, to say, I'm going to choose to engage differently, even when it's hard. Well, I think what you're doing is you're helping people who maybe have a tendency of avoidance, people who have a tendency of, they get overwhelmed when it comes to uh, politics or get overwhelmed when it comes to some of these matters. And they just feel like all it's going to do is create argument. Well, the reality is, is that it gives us some peace if we know that there's a path to get some good information on something. Because at the end of the day, some of that anxiety and defensiveness is about not wanting, again, to be finesse, not wanting to be suckered. When I think of many people in our country right now, they feel suckered. They don't mm-hmm. want to be suckered. They know there's algorithms. They know yeah. that that their their information is. I mean, people are getting robocalled all the time. Or text. And there are no, no. Oh yeah. I mean, it's 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 information is not safe. It's it's privacy is nebulous. Yeah. So people, I think, in some ways, um, on top of that, in the church feel like they got to stand their ground mm-hmm. on certain issues. And I think that's where it kind of comes back to um, this idea of how can you call yourself Christian right. if you support this or that, which I it's interesting to me because, again, what this book will do is it will give people a path to take personally. I think some people try to go out there and work things out in the community before they've worked it out within yeah. themselves. <laughs> yeah. So this is a great opportunity to take the path on the inside of, okay, what do I believe? Maybe I'm going to have to pull out my high school history book. Maybe I'm going to have to do some research on, okay, what are the amendments and what does the constitution say? And maybe I'm going to have to go back to, I didn't even get into this, but primary resources. Oh yeah. Like we didn't get into that. There's so much, we we could do another primary resources. Like when I was in theology school and so forth, you got to go to the original text. Yep. Before you get into this or that version, you got to know how to break it down for yourself. Yep. And yet it feels like people skip a step because that's the way things are set up. Yep. So thank you yeah. so much for writing this book. <laughs> I look forward to sharing it with a lot of folks in my circle. And I want to thank you for the time and energy that you've spent helping us to understand it today a little bit. So thank you. Thank you. I hope I hope people find it helpful. And it's exactly what you said. I, I want to give people a space to it starts here and then we can go out and decide how we want to move forward. And I think that's the step that a lot of us are, are missing and it's not easy. Um, but I hope that it gives people a path forward. So thank you. Well, I'm going to tell you what I tell all my guests that we are with you and God is for you, Rachel. Thank you for joining today. Thank you so much.